Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Try it. You're dead, Potter. You're dead, Potter. Potter. I'm ready. Okay. Welcome back to the Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. Episode something. Yeah. We are well into this. It's like six or seven. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader today. Yeah, and I feel like this is the episode where we actually talk about a book the most. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the most... It's not normie, but it's like more normie. Yes. But really interesting. Oh, yeah. Totally. But we actually talk about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader a lot yes. in this episode. So Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we're talking with Matt Michelados. Mm-hmm. He's such a great interview, but we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a minute. Uh, I wanted to jump in with our Dear Wormwood segment. Yeah. These okay. are getting ever more popular. Yeah. They? Right. Okay. I so mean, I'm- out in the world, not with like our listeners. <laughs> nobody cares, but you know. About our segment. Nobody cares. But right. I, care, I, mean- I care about you. This is, this, I mean, all I do is I go on Twitter and uh-huh. I type in my dear Wormwood. And it's, I feel like you should be brave and do it on Facebook sometime. Ooh, yeah. I don't know if Facebook search works the same be way. Be brave, Crispin. <laughs> I'm just saying logistically. <laughs> um, all right. I have my, to guess, right? You, yeah. You're going to read both of them. I'm going to read both, right? Okay. Yeah. My dear Wormwood, if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. Your affectionate uncle, your uncle Screwtape. Here's the second one. My dear Wormwood, I think I left the iron on this morning. Please check to make sure it's off. And are we out of milk? I think I'll pick some up on the way home. Don't forget to tape Matlock. It's on at 8 p.m. <laughs> See you in hell. Your Uncle Screwtape. <laughs> Who did that one? I don't know. Some, like, comedy account. Matlock. <laughs> wow. I really like the See You in Hell part. <laughs> <laughs> See you in hell. <laughs> wow, this is devolved. I know. The first one was good. A well-moderated religion. Uh huh. Like, great for the demons. Right. So true. I know. I felt like that like, was you very. Can, you can vote for very corrupt politicians, but just tell yourself you're pro life. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been seeing a lot of Facebook posts about how this is a time akin to Noah or Jonah, or like a time to have faith, knowing that Trump will prevail. Oh, you can't bring this stuff up to me. I'm <laughs> sorry. Oh, no. No, Christmas. It's just my Sunday school teachers are posting these things on Facebook. <gasps> my, you know, from when I was a kid. I mean, you know me. 
I just post enough things on Facebook where my Sunday school teachers would have blocked me by now. Except they usually were always my mom <laughs> since <laughs> my dad was a pastor and she would teach Sunday school. That's true. I'm sure she's, you know. On a journey? Not, and I mean, yes, she's on a journey. I was like, I'm sure my mom has muted me sometimes. Mm, Don't you think? Probably, yeah. yeah. She's not blocked me for long. Yeah. Right. Anyways. The old snooze. Okay. You had a question for me. I did have a question. So this interview with Matt Michelados was really great. He's like such a Lewis nerd, but like in the best way possible because he's very aware of like the flaws. I mean, to the point where he, Matt has actually written his own like Christian fantasy series, but taking almost as a starting point, like what if Narnia had less misogyny and racism, <laughs> you know? So, like, somebody who's really passionate about this stuff, but, you know, sees it with eyes wide open. So we talk a lot about Eustace in this book because, to me, he's the most interesting thing about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And, of course, there's that really intense scene where he turns into a dragon and Aslan has to, like, rip his human skin off. And it's really painful for him to be baptized. And so... I mean, I recorded this interview with Matt a few months ago, and while talking to him, I was like, yeah, this book is, like, amazing. You're right. It's not stupid. It's amazing. But then, you know, it is still interesting. Like, what does it mean if C.S. Lewis thinks, like, we are all dragons inside or or whatever he's trying to say with Eustace? Like, Matt is saying, like, the dragon was Eustace all along. He always was a dragon. And, like, in this world, he just, like, his outsides just matches insides. Like, how does that strike you as somebody who is actually working on a book about how viewing yourself as corrupt or total depravity is, is sometimes now seen you know how could how that's not a great thing for kids to think about themselves right yeah i mean it's not a great thing right. <laughs> for kids to think about themselves we do we obviously need healing and we need growth and we need development and we do hurt ourselves and other people but the idea of like who you are at your core is like something repulsive it's, it's actually really interesting um Kids with a lot of shame uh, and attachment trauma will describe themselves as, like, reptilian. So, like, uh, unstrokable creatures is what Robert Cairn says. You know, and that's, like, snakes, turtles. Like, so it's really interesting that Lewis plays into this. And I think that there's, like, good and bad. Because there is this sense of, like, Aslan isn't disgusted by Eustace and his dragonness. Which I think is really important because... Growing up in evangelicalism, it's always like God is disgusted and driven away by your sin. Um, but I do think that core idea of like there's something that is like repulsive about you is not really helpful. So Right. And I'm not saying that's what Lewis was doing, but that is one thing that Matt was saying. So mm-hmm. which is interesting to think about. Yeah, so I think people can listen and make their own assessments about that but i just wanted to put that out there like it's a complicated topic i don't know exactly what lewis was doing with that maybe it's matt's you know evangelical reading that is taking it to mean he you know was a dragon all along because when i was a kid i was i was just like oh he's acting greedy and and then that's why he turned into a dragon so you know who knows but i just want to throw it out there your attachment therapist self probably had some like little prickles or something Uh yeah totally yeah i mean i think that fits with uh, a lot of like religions, you know. So I mean, a lot of, <laughs> a lot. I think I think that fits with a lot of streams of Christianity, not just evangelicalism, but I think it's really pronounced in evangelicalism. 
And this idea of like, I need to be changed in order to be accepted. I don't think that's a very helpful framework. I think God accepts us exactly as we are. But we do need a change in relation to like how we are treating others, mm-hmm. right? Which is a part of uh, uses his story, right? Right, yeah. And I think like there is a sense of like it's healing. It's not just right. changing. Right. So I really appreciate that part of it. It's also really interesting to hear... In that part of the story, Matt points out that, like, Aslan is not identified as Aslan. Yeah. Right? He's just a divine being. Or, I mean... Yeah, it really made me think, like, are people out there just having interactions with Jesus Christ out in the world and not even know it? You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you let your brain sort of think through these things. I will say, re-listening to this interview to make show notes, I totally teared up when we were talking about reap cheap and i was not expecting mm. that reap cheap and death and i don't know it's really fun to get to nerd out about these things sometimes i i thought mm-hmm. so i'm enjoying it i hope everybody is uh ready to just deep dive into some nerdy things about um the voyage of the dawn treader also as you're listening keep in mind if you have some thoughts or questions, like random Narnia questions you might want to ask Matt because Matt is super cool and said he would be up for a Q&A episode at some point. I think he'd be the perfect guest to answer all of our burning, nerdy, whatever questions we have about Lewis and Narnia. Yeah, I'm really excited to jump in. Okay, I'm so excited to be here today talking to Matt Michelados. I met him when I was on his podcast, which is called The Fascinating Podcast, which he co-hosts with a couple very cool people. And Matt is also an author. He writes, would you call it science fiction, fantasy? Yeah, what, I do what would both. You call it, uh, but yeah, my, my recent series is a young adult fantasy series trilogy. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I love YA so much. And Matt also has been writing through the Chronicles of Narnia for, is it a website or a blog that sort of specializes yeah, so in fantasy? Yeah, so T-O-R, is one of the largest science fiction and fantasy publishers in, in the uh, secular world. And they have a website that they call, it's publisher agnostic, meaning they'll write about any publisher's work. And I'm doing a series for them walking through all of the science fiction and fantasy of C.S. Lewis. So it's going to be several years that we're going to be working on it. But right now we're in the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh my goodness. So you are you are such a perfect person to talk to about the Chronicles of Narnia. I think what I want to talk to you about is the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I believe is book four. Yeah. Uh, depending on oh, how you do right, the, which chronology you know, the So in, in publishing order, it's book three. Uh, okay. But I think you're right. I think it's book four in the chronological order. Yeah. And, and I'm not assuming that our listeners have even read the book or maybe they read it when they were kids. So before I reread parts of it for this interview, I would say The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is about a ship, <laughs> a really cool ship. And it has Edmund and Lucy, who we know from the Chronicles of Narnia, the first, you know, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And then it introduces their cousin, Eustace, who is like a horrible person. And yet when I was a kid, I thought he was by far the most compelling oh, yeah. character. 
of this book. Like, who cares about Caspian? He's so <sighs> one note, you know what I mean? But like, Eustace has a lot going on. And I, I would say the two things I really remember as a child from this book would be um, Eustace turning into yep. a dragon and it uh, has an encounter with Aslan and then becomes like a better person because of that. And then the very end is about uh, Reepicheep and um, Reepicheep's journey to mm. continue on to Aslan's land. So, I, so as a kid, those were the two mm-hmm. things that really stood out to me. There's other plot points that didn't really make a huge impression. It involves um, Caspian, who's now king of Narnia, they're on a ship and they're trying to find these seven lords that were banished when his father was king. And, you know, I, I didn't find all that stuff on the islands to be terribly important. Am I missing something? How, how would you well, sum it no, up? Well, no, you're not missing something at all. I think as a kid, I had the exact same experience where I was like, what is this story actually about? Uh, it's like a bunch of disconnected events and it was really confusing. It doesn't have a plot as such, uh, which I think is part of the reason some of it doesn't stick in your mind. Uh, but it's an issue of genre. Uh, and of course I didn't know this as a kid, uh, but rereading as, as an adult, it falls into the realm of sort of these travel log spiritual pilgrimage books, uh, with, which, uh, so, and Lewis said this in one of his letters, he said that this book is about the spiritual life. How do we grow? And especially Reepicheep, who's focused purely on essentially, how do I get to heaven? Uh, how do I live a heavenly way? And then Eustace and all the other characters, almost all of them experience some sort of spiritual growth. And the seven sacraments are in the book. Uh, from the Catholic Church, and Lewis, you know, was from the Church of England, who they recognized two of the sacraments as gospel sacraments, and the other five as kind of like there's debate, but they're all seven in the book. Um, and whoa, what do you mean? Can you? <laughs> okay. what, what do you mean? Uh, well, so so okay, just so everyone knows, my background: I grew up a Christian in a Christian home. Uh, you know, have my seminary degree, all that. And I've been in some version of ministry for like 20 years. So a sacrament, right, is a gift from God that's designed to, it's a ritual, right? A rite that imparts divine grace. It's a way that God gives us something through uh, a ritual, an action. And in the Anglican church, the English church, there's seven sacraments or the Catholic church, and they're all in Don Treader. Uh, they all appear at different times. And Eustace, uh, the one that appears for him is baptism. Uh, we see that really clearly in his story. But there's also there's communion, marriage, confirmation, uh, uh, ordination, reconciliation, anointing of the sick. Uh, th- those are all also in the story. Uh, so Lewis is trying to show us these are some of the tools that are used in the spiritual life to bring divine grace, to bring tra- transformation and growth. Um, so that's pretty fascinating. And Lewis weaves all these things in, uh, into the story in ways that, uh, make them compelling as a story. But I think the the whole thing about the plot, right, is that it doesn't feel like a plot because it's like, it's about the transformation. It's, uh, we can look at old novels about this or recent novels, both this happens in both. So like a recent novel would be something like eat, pray, love, right? That's actually in the same genre as this book, which is weird. Um, but Whoa. you look at also things like, uh, one of Lewis's favorite books, uh, 
it, it would have been like, say the stories of uh, the Irish St. Benedict follows the, very closely to this. There's journeys through different islands where they're having spiritual encounters. Uh, there's a medieval journey memoir called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, which Lewis loved. Uh, and in fact, in that story, there's this little race of people who have giant feet that they sit under the shade, just like in Lewis's story. Or even Dante's, uh, like the Par- Paradiso, right? That's what it is. It's a spiritual journey novel with disconnected events that teach us something about the spiritual life and transformation. Um, so I think that helped me as an adult to go like, oh, this is what's happening in this book. So it's a exploration of the desire of human beings to grow in their character, become better people, and search for the divine in this life. Uh, as well as the hope for something beautiful in the next, right? So, yeah. Yes. And I think as a child, that really stands out to me. Um, so I asked my daughter, because she's been listening to these uh, books on CD since she was like four. So she's listened to them several times. And I asked her, what's her favorite book? And she said, The Voyage wow. of the Dawn Treader, which I found really interesting. It could be because Reepicheep is a mouse. Maybe best, we should have said best that. Best mouse in all of literature. <laughs> Love Reepicheep. <laughs> Uh, I have kind of mixed feelings about Rikuchi, but I loved him as a kid, of course. And I was very drawn to the characters that Lewis wrote that were like flawed Mm -hmm. children. So Eustace was really important to me. Edmund Mm -hmm. was really important Mm -hmm. to me as a kid. Um, Because growing up evangelical, you are sort of taught to think there's something horribly wrong (laughs) with you. And um, I saw that in those characters and saw Aslan... Loving them anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it was really important for me. Now, rereading the story of Eustace, uh, let's just let's just yeah. talk about Eustace really quick. I want to okay. ask you some questions. How Lewis sets up the book by making Eustace out to be this horrible, uh, you know, in our terms today, I would call him like the product of like liberal, progressive parents. <laughs> He's a super stuck up prig yeah. who he calls his parents by their first name. They only eat healthy I mean, they're food. literally vegetarians, you know? he says. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so tell me what's going on with how Lewis talks about well, Eustace. Well, uh, yeah, as we see Eustace's growth, not just in this book, but in the next one as well, uh, what we see is, which is the silver chair. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he is in many ways the victim of a, uh, of a worldview that's allowed him to become kind of a bully. Uh, and we see in the, in the silver chair that he's the victim of bullying too. And that's been part of the issue. Um, I think Lewis is more concerned about Eustace's inability to see anything spiritual in the world than these other things. Mm. For sure, uh, there are things that he lays out that are political and, uh, philosophical. But a lot of what he's driving at, I think, is this intense secularism, uh, in his education. Uh, and he makes throwaway comments about it all the time. And in Silver Chair, he says, uh, Bibles weren't allowed in Experiment House, which is the school he goes to. Um, but we see this as, as Eustace enters Narnia, he doesn't seem to be aware that he, that magic is even happening. He keeps saying things like, Oh, I need to speak to the British consul. You know, like he's, <laughs> he thinks that there's somewhere, there's somebody who's going to write a document that's going to get him released to cross back the British border or something. Uh, and that continues well into the book, uh, uh, up, up until he's not able to deny it anymore. So, the, and he's a jerk. He is, he's really mean to his cousins and looks down on them. 
And I, I think, uh, yeah, there's an interesting moment later where Edmund says to him, after his conversion experience, Edmund says, you were just an ass, but I was a traitor, <laughs> which I think mm-hmm. is a little beautiful mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and like you said, kind of reminding us that these aren't all perfect kids, that they have issues. And that part of why they're in Narnia is to grow and to be changed so that they can find uh, the way Lewis would talk about it. So they can find Christ in their world. Okay. This is so fascinating. I think you just really helped me understand how Lewis is setting up this character and his role. And and we're going to be talking to other experts about, you know, Lewis's view on mm-hmm. fantasy and why it's mm-hmm. so important and, and why Christians in particular, you know, should be aware of fantasy and magic, you know, George McDonald, all these people. I read all that stuff yeah. when I was a kid and it was really impactful to me. So thank you for pointing that out. I, I was really struck by the fact that Eustace doesn't even know what a dragon is. Right. Like he has, he has no the wrong kind of education dragon. and that's Lewis's thing. Your, your imagination's been stunted. You don't understand the world because you don't know spiritual things either. Yeah. That's so fascinating. So what happens is they eventually get to a ship and horrible things have happened. They've been in this like storm for two weeks. They haven't had enough water or food. Their clothes are in rags and they get to this island and they have to start rebuilding the ship and they have to get food. And Eustace is like, I don't want to do any of this. I just want to go somewhere and sleep. And so he kind of slinks off. He finds, um, he gets lost. He finds this lake and then he sees this creature that he has no concept for which turns out to be a dragon and the dragon like dies right it's like really sad and (laughs) nearly done so sad a very sad little dragon and then eustace goes into the dragon's cave sees treasure but again lewis makes it clear like he doesn't eustace didn't even know to expect treasure right you know so little about it and then he puts a gold bracelet on his arm and and falls asleep and and you uh, before we started recording, you mentioned something that the text says right at that. Yeah, moment. it says that uh, it says Eustace lays down on the treasure and he put he puts on that armband and it says he fell asleep while thinking dragonish thoughts, uh, and then he wakes up right and he has become a dragon. Which again, he doesn't realize at first. He hears something moving around. He's scared. It's actually himself. You know, he comes out, he looks in the water, and then it says, it's too bad because he's a dragon, uh, uh, that he eats the other dragon's carcass, <laughs> which just kind of out of instinct, uh, which he feels weird about later. Um, I love that part to me. It's just so C.S. Right? lewis because he's like, I know that sounds horrible, but like, this is what dragons yeah. do. Like, dragons love the taste of yeah. fresh dragon. So it's like not weird or bad that he yeah, ate not, the other dragon. Fault, I was just dragon. like, this is so funny. Um, and I think, so this is a point that I think gets lost sometimes when we talk about this story, because it's so compelling, the part where he becomes the dragon. I think Lewis is making mm-hmm. it pretty clear to us that uh, not only did Eustace not know what a dragon was until this moment, but he was a dragon all along. He just didn't know. He had no idea. Mm-hmm. So this is a moment of revelation for Eustace when he is forced to acknowledge the externalization of his internalized dragonness. Um, and it doesn't have a, I think sometimes with dragons, there's a really simple kind of moral thing to thing like uh, dragons are about being really self-centered. Uh, yeah. And there's a part of that, but also as he starts kind of repenting, right. As he starts having all these regrets about the way he's acted, a lot of it is about the way that he has seen the people around him 
because of his unawareness of spiritual things and of being a dragon. So, oh, my my cousins weren't so bad after all is actually a big major piece of it. Uh, and he feels horrible. He's like crying all the time as a dragon. He can't communicate well. Uh, and everyone feels bad for him once they realize he's Eustace, but there's nothing to be done. Even Lucy's magic uh, cordial can't fix it, um, which is is the anointing the sick, right? She anoints him then, and she anoints mm-hmm. him earlier when he's seasick, and that does work. Um, so, yeah, so so Eustace goes through this really terrible moment when he realizes he's a dragon. He's trying to stop being a dragon, but he can't do it himself. And throughout the novel, we see this. No one is transformed in this book. No one, unless Aslan shows up. That's what changes people. Yeah, and so what happens with Eustace is that for, it was like six days or something, yeah. right? He is trying to be helpful. He's flying around, helping them get provisions, but everybody's sort of like, we can't talk about it, but we can't like move on to the next island without him because he, he won't get on the <laughs> boat. And then he has this experience with Aslan. And I just love you to kind of walk us okay, through that. Yeah. So he meets this lion, right? And here's this weird moment where he, he doesn't know who the lion is. He doesn't know who Aslan is. He's heard the name and he's had like weird, bad feelings about the name, but he doesn't know who Aslan is. Certainly doesn't know it's Jesus. Uh, And he follows the lion to this fresh uh, fountain, like a pool, right? And it's got marble steps going down into it. And Aslan tells him that he has to wash in the pool and Eustace starts like scratching at his skin, trying to get it off and he can't. And then Aslan tears him out of his skin completely, uh, which is this horrific, painful experience. And then he washes in the water completely naked. And Lewis goes out of his way to say that. Um, And then, uh, yeah, he's given new clothes and he wanders out and Edmund's the first to see him. And he tells Edmund the story and Edmund says, you just met Aslan. That's what happened. That's amazing. Um, and I think it's beautiful, right? So this is a this is a very traditional Jewish baptism happening here. So we've got the mikveh, which is the living water in a, a special place where you go, you repent. And the reason you're naked is because you're being reborn, is the idea. Can't take jewelry, can't take clothing, can't take your dragonish self. And you come out newly reborn. Uh, and, and what's fascinating to me, and I think the thing as uh, people who love C.S. Lewis, who come from spiritual backgrounds, particularly Christian, uh, Lewis had no issue at all with Eustace experiencing transformation, uh, not just transformation, but conversion, new birth, without even knowing it was Aslan he was interacting with. And I think that's really mm. counter to my faith tradition. I grew up evangelical. I, I'm still evangelical, which is it's all about what you know to be transformed, who you know. Do you know the right words? Uh, Jesus, please come into my heart, etc. cetera. Uh, no, Lewis says no. It's about an encounter with the living Aslan. That's what transforms you. You don't have to know a bunch of stuff. You just have to be in relationship or in proximity to this being, uh, which is really different than how we talked about it in my church growing up. Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. And I I do wonder about some of that overlap between fantasy being so important to C.S. Lewis. You know, it is the opposite of this 
logical. And he wrote some of those books, right? That Mere Christianity, sure. right? Here's some step-by-step uh, theology questions, answers, but also why, you know, this mystery and the mysterious nature, you know, it's that really famous line, right? From the line, the witch in the wardrobe, like Aslan's not a yeah. team lion, but he's good. And, and, and like you were saying, nobody changes or transforms unless Aslan is the one to do it, but you can't control Aslan. Like Aslan waited six days before coming for Eustace, which is really um, an interesting thing to think about. Now, when I was a kid, I obviously did not think about mikvahs <laughs> and I did not think about Eustace being a dragon all along. When I was a kid, I thought, Eustace was greedy and took a gold mm-hmm. bracelet that wasn't his. And because he was greedy, he was changed into um, a dragon. And so I also thought that when um, Aslan sort of did that painful thing, you know, taking off that gold jewelry. So for me, I thought it was mostly about greed. And I was really transfixed by the ways that C.S. Lewis wrote about mm. pain, like the pain of the flesh of Eustace. And there's so much descriptive language about pain like the gold cuff you know when Eustace is a dragon talks about it throbbing all the time and then how painful Mm -hmm. it was to be baptized by Aslan I mean it was kind Mm -hmm. of horrifying Mm -hmm. as a kid there's some body horror going on there for sure yeah what kid would want this yeah what's that what's that well you know uh I, I think Lewis actually one of the things he does wonderfully and, and where the imagination piece comes in is he wants us not to just have a, he doesn't just want us to have an intellectual awareness of what's happening. He wants us to have an emotional connection to deep truth. And he says that multiple times in multiple ways. Um, he is less interested in our theological development than he is on hitting these places where truth creates emotional resonance for us. Uh, so what I think what he's doing there is he's saying, um, you know what? Transformation is not this thing that's just easy and fun. The spiritual mm. life is painful. And there are times when you discover that you're a dragon and you have been all along, it's not like you just say like, okay, now I'll be a kid. That it's going to require tearing away parts of your life and it's going to hurt. Uh, but it's good. And you're going to feel better after, but it's going to, in fact, Eustace says something that it's like tearing away an old scab and like you hate it, but you kind of want to do it. Right. Which is super gross. Thanks, Eustace. Um, But, but that's what he's getting at is that this is going to hurt really bad. And let's not pretend that that's not true. Uh, Which again, Mm -hmm. in churches, I think we can, we can uh, lose that piece. We get all triumphalistic about it. Ah, we're going to be washed in the blood of the lamb, et cetera, et cetera, and leave behind the also you're going to die. You're going to die, and that's going to hurt. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was rereading that passage this morning, and, you know, this is – we're recording this in June and, um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, and then our country has just had so many protests and things going on with the death of of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Oh, my gosh. So I – as I was reading it, I just thought this, this was not my experience being a child and, and becoming a Christian, you know, I was raised mm-hmm. in a Christian family, but you know, accepted Jesus into my heart with a mm-hmm. prayer I was baptized mm-hmm. when I was six. But I thought I relate to this experience of the pain of having your identity mm. and everything you thought that was good about yourself and the way you presented yourself to the world, like needing to have that 
stripped down is so painful. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about um, my complicitness in, you know, sure. white supremacist ways of being in the world of theologies of ideologies. And like, it's painful. It's so painful because you have all these competing things coming up, right? Like as soon as you are ready to remove one layer, you automatically have this dragonish side that wants to rise up and be like, no, I'm actually an okay person. Please listen. You know? So I was like, wow, this, this to me is more of like a long term discipleship issue than a one-time baptismal yeah. event. Um, but I don't know if that's just as an adult well, reading it. The more you talk about it, the more I'm like, these are obviously for adults. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's part of why they have enduring uh, popularity, I think, is there are things you can dig out of it as an adult. I think like what you're saying, my friend Mark Charles, who's a Native American theologian, says that you have to understand that white people, that we also experience trauma as we come to recognize white supremacy. It is that dragonish moment, right? Um, and that mm -hmm. there should be some compassion for people going through trauma, uh, that they also, we also are victims of white supremacy in that sense. Um, and the transformation is painful. And there is a place where you can turn back. Eustace didn't have to get in the water. Uh, and he would have grown all those scales back, I bet. So, yeah, it's such it's such an intense um, story, and I I do wonder a little bit about you know Lewis's ideas about trauma and childhood oh. and all that. All that kind of came up for me <laughs> as I was reading it, but that's that's for another podcast. Oh yeah, that, he. <laughs> I mean, his mother died when he was young. About. He was bullied and abused as a kid there. And then he went to war as a teenager. So, I mean, there are a variety of issues. There's so much to go on. Now, do you want to talk at all about Repachit? Oh, my gosh. Or do you think we can't squeeze that I, in I would here? Just, but what happens with Repachit? Okay, so Repachit, I think the thing I never noticed as a kid that I didn't understand was that when he passes into Aslan's country, he is dying. Um. And that was, I, I lost my, my closest friend passed away a couple of years ago from cancer, four year cancer battle that ended in her death. And, uh, reading it now, I see all these things that were happening at the same time as my friend was passing. He talks about how time changes. Uh, he talks about the lot, the loss of appetite, the, the way the world, other things don't seem to matter anymore. And as we're coming closer, the, the boat, they can't go any further. It's become too shallow. And they see the entire sea is full of lilies, right? Which are symbolic mm -hmm. of death and resurrection. Uh, and we even use them when we bury people, or we used to. Sometimes we still do. And uh, Reepa Cheap uh, disconnects from his friends. They're crying. They're weeping. They're so sad. And he's like about to go on this journey they can't go on. And he crosses over the, the waves. And Aslan says, no one else can go. And it's really hard. Prince Caspian has a really hard time with it when he's told he has to go back. And then the kids are sent back to their world. And it's all very, um, it's beautiful. But it's also, I thought, really sad um, that Reaper Cheap has gone on from this world and not to be seen again uh, until the last battle, right? When we all cross into Aslan's yeah. country. All but Susan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which, which we will talk yes. about with another interview. So, so yeah, the thing is, at the end of of this of this journey to all these islands, they are trying basically to sail to the end of the known world and into what do they call Aslan's, Aslan's country, country yeah. or Aslan's country? Which 
I'm a little confused by the way C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan's country because, you know, he describes like Aslan is the son of the emperor of Aslan's yep. country, right? Like, so it's all a little confusing. That's fine. Um, and Reepicheep has been this like very um, devout little warrior huh. mouse who has so much honor and is really funny and is like, you know, but he really wants to get to Aslan's country. And so at the very end of the journey, as you were describing, the boat gets, you know, into this place that gets shallower. And then Reepicheep is the only one that goes goes off um, into the end. And as a kid, I just thought it was an amazing, an amazing ending to this book because Lewis had so much hope, I think, that the next world is going to be yeah. better. And I think anybody with any understanding of injustice and evil and suffering and pain, right? That's just that's just a longing we probably all can agree. Like, I hope the next world is Yeah, better. for sure. Well, and I think part of what he shows with Reepicheep is Reepicheep's focus on the beauty of Aslan's country actually makes him a more noble person in this world, in Narnia. Yeah. Uh, he he's a saint really in some sense and he's everyone else is being transformed and becoming more like Reepa cheap as the as the story goes along yeah oh interesting because in the beginning he's kind of like a little bit of a hot-headed <laughs> well that's true um, that's probably I mean? his one defect but you'll see like uh eustace <laughs> as soon as he's transformed what's the first thing that happens this uh the sea serpent attacks the uh, boat and he's jumping in there with caspian's second best sword to try and help which he never would have done before so he's become right, more reaper cheapish right. he has a bit of chivalry in him all of a sudden yeah, and even when Eustace was the dragon and Reepicheep, you know, kind of hated him, that he still would. He was stay by up far the kindest to him. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so beautiful. So I, I love talking this through with you. I think this gives me great appreciation, and I can't wait to link to some of the articles you've written about this book and about Eustace and baptism and and the sacraments. Real quick, I I wanted to ask you, I know you have um, spent time grappling with elements of Lewis's legacy that are not so great, um, including, you know, racism and sexism in his writing. So I I wondered if you wanted to say anything to that really. Yeah. So Lewis was a product, product of his time for sure. And he would say everyone has blind spots depending on the, the era and the place they've grown up. And, and two of his were, uh, racism and, and sexism. And the way he speaks about women and people of color are, are full of problematic issues. Uh, some of it because of his lack of interaction. He didn't know very many women uh, uh, or have good relationship with them. And this starts to change after he gets married, actually, which is fascinating. Um, I think for me, my fantasy series is called The Sunlit Lands, uh, which is actually a reference to Lewis also. But the... Um, I wanted, I personally was wrestling with these books that are so central and transformational to my own childhood and my own spiritual life um, that I love so much. And that now as an adult, I look back at and go like, ooh, boy, that is rough. That is hard. And so uh, my books are about these teenagers who get called to another world to fight, they think, for the good guys and then discover that things are much more complicated than they thought and that there are some issues of, uh, privilege and injustice that they are blind to when they arrive, that now if they act on them, if they try to stop them, it's going to require them giving up some magical gifts that have been given to them. Uh, so, so it's, it's very, um, it's very much in the tradition of Lewis, 
while also kind of working through some of my own feelings and critiques about Lewis. Wow. I, I think that's incredible. Um, I, I think a lot of us, right, are scared to critique or even like go back and revisit the things we loved when we were kids. And obviously with this podcast, The Prophetic Imagination Station, Crispin and I have no problem going back and revisiting things. Um, but we did get a lot of feedback that people were scared to talk about the Chronicles of Narnia because they're so important. But I'm really of the persuasion that if if you love something, you should, you know, welcome critique, <laughs> right? into into it right okay let me just know. say this you are in the spirit of lewis's friends by doing this none of lewis's friends like oh. narnia uh including J.R. tolkien he hated it um because it was too literal of an uh, allegory or what? that was one of the things they didn't like that he was writing such spiritual things when he was such a new believer tolkien hated the way his mythology was so hodgepodge and brought in all these different things and one of the guys who helped lead him to christ dyson so dyson and tolkien have this important conversation with him dyson every time tolkien read would say not another effing elf uh so they had oh. really strong feelings and went after each other about their work. Lewis would count you a friend if you were honest to him about your experience of his books. I think that's I think that's a good important maybe even note to end on for this. But thank you so much Matt for your work and even trying to think deeply about these, help other people think deeply about these books and to think about creating in the spirit of Lewis. But, um, you know, when you know better, you do yeah. better. Um, isn't that what I want to say to Maya Angelou said that. And so as we know more about, you know, Lewis's specific place in, in the world and the way he viewed others, I think it's okay to take that with us. Now, do you have anything like you have kids, right? Like, how do you, how do you, Talk about these these books with your kids. Uh, Let's end with yeah. This so so my kids didn't show any interest in Narnia when they were young. I kept trying to get them, and <laughs> literally what they said, and this this will go well with your your book. <laughs> they said, "Why do we have to hear about British kids? Can't we hear about American kids?" Uh, oh. <laughs> so a little bit of exceptionalism there. Um, the uh, so they didn't read them till they were a bit older. And my daughter, the first book she read was actually Till We Have Faces, which is one of my favorite of Lewis's books. Oh, and yeah. she said, she got done. She was like, that was amazing. It's too bad it's so sexist. So I was like, oh, that's like his least sexist book. Um, oh. So my kids were already kind of in a place to walk through those questions. They, they love the books and found some good things in them. I would just say this, like any entertainment you are uh, consuming with your kids – one of the best things you can do is ask them questions and point things out and let them figure it out. Instead of telling them this is sexist, this is racist. You say like, do you think there were any good people in Calarmine, you know, uh, uh, that might've felt differently, you know, or point out the places where Lewis makes those comments, but not strong enough. Um, you know, and I, I think that can, that can be helpful or like, yeah. Do you think Mrs. Beaver really would be, a homemaker when, why would she do that? Why does she sew? <laughs> you know, like we can talk about those things. Um, and then let me just say this about Eustace too. The end of his spiritual journey actually comes in the silver chair. And I think this will go to what you were saying, Danielle is um, Aslan comes to him and Jill, they've messed up a bunch of stuff and they feel really bad about it. And they say, Aslan, Aslan, we messed up. We messed up. And he comes in and says, he put his tongue on each of their foreheads. And he said, children, 
forget those things. I won't be forever scolding you. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of Lewis's Aslan is that he, he's not just someone who shows up and tells you what you did wrong. He comes and says, it's okay. You still accomplish what I set out for you. And this is not going to be our relationship as me forever telling you that you're wrong, which I think for me, that was a feeling of freedom as a kid to know that's who Aslan is. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the one I wanted to meet. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're making me really uh, love love this book a little bit more than I, I thought I did. And just, I think what I'm going to walk away with is this idea that pain is a part of the spiritual yeah. journey. And um, maybe not exactly in the ways I was taught as, as a child, but um, continuing to invite in this idea that I, I need help um, to be mm. reborn. Well, thank you, Matt. I feel like this has been fascinating. And uh, thanks so much for sharing all of your uh, insight. Do you want to really quickly say where people can find you? Yeah, if you can spell my name, which is a lot to ask, you can find me. My last name is Michalotis, M-I-K-A-L-A-T-O-S, Matt Michalotis. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, you know, MySpace, all the big spaces. Um, And uh, I'm not actually on MySpace. Uh, I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I was. Nice space. Uh, if you want to see wow. my fantasy books, go to thesunlitlands.com and you can learn a little bit about them there. And you have two of two the three. Two of the three hours, are out. Third one will come out next summer. It's written, so we're just waiting for the final release. Wow. Can I tell you a really yeah. funny story? I named my son nice. Ransom after yep. Dr. Ransom. I've actually never finished that trilogy and my husband's never even read it once. And so I think it's really hilarious. And I'm just um, confessing. Paralandra is one of my favorite books and Ransom's great. And I don't know if you know this, but Ransom was actually heavily based on Tolkien as far as the character. Oh, that's awesome. I got to go research my son's (laughs) name now. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.